McAvoy is a female-founded, family-owned 550-acre farm in Petaluma, California, known for the world's best estate-produced extra virgin olive oil. Contrary to popular belief, extra virgin olive oil is great for cooking. In fact, I use it almost daily for both salads and cooked meals. It's easily incorporated into almost any dish or cuisine, adding new flavors and healthy polyphenols and monounsaturated fats. The smoke point for extra virgin olive oil averages around 405 degrees Fahrenheit and is high enough for most cooking methods. It also has high oxidative stability, meaning that it contains compounds that prevent the oil from deteriorating when exposed to heat during the cooking process. If you're looking to cook with a healthy oil and want the flavors of your food to shine through, McAvoy's Extra Virgin Cooking Olive Oil is a perfect choice. Oh, and we have a special discount just for you, our listener. Use code SPEAKING15 and you'll get 15% off your order. Andre had been shot in 1998, a year prior to this crime being committed, but his recovery was extensive. Andre almost lost his life when he got shot. A year later, he was still unable to walk properly, let alone run. Yet, he was still identified in the lineup as the assailant. The actual perpetrator, his name was Shonda Tyrell. Shonda and I had very similar features. Distinct, actually. He's a light-skinned male. He, he, had, he wore Afro-styled haircut at the time, like myself. Um, he was from the neighborhood. He was also a hustler. But we looked almost as if we could be brothers or some type of relatives. So this is how the variation of the distinction came about, where I walked into the precinct knowing I had nothing to do with this, but he walked scot-free the streets in understanding that I took the rap for his crime. You're listening to Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. We asked Andre how and why he had been shot. He told us that he had made some bad decisions and ended up dealing drugs. But after being shot, and almost losing his life, he knew things had to change, and quickly. I thought long and hard about not getting caught. So what I used to do is, I used to have a beeper that I used to walk around with, and I used to, every individual who used to, I, we used to call them custies at the time, customers, and I used to tell them upon making a sale to them, I would tell them in engaging with them, I would say, listen, it would be much more safer for you to engage with me outside of these premises here because it's too many hustlers. It's a possibility of police rolling up on us. So let's go to a location other than this place where we could be safe. We eventually started to have great relations and we would meet other places. So they would get my beeper number, I would, they would call me and beat me, and I would beep, um, call them back immediately. And then we would meet in, in various locations in the Bronx. So as I indicated to you, Chia, that I was on the street um, prior to going to college, I had been in a crossroads of my life. And in that crossroads, I was still in the street peddling. 
you know. And there's one day I went to um, catch the custody, as we would say, we catch the custody. I should say, um, give him what he needed. And I had been traveling to another known territory. Unbeknownst to me, they had been watching me going and coming. You know, I learned this later on through some of my old colleagues. But I had went and I served the customer what he needed. And I had been coming back from White Castle through this block and I was shot. At that time when I was shot, I almost died. The bullet pierced my shin. It severed my tibia nerve. Um, it cut my main artery and I almost bled to death. At that time, I had two options. And this is told to me weeks after from my girlfriend. Either they were gonna cut my leg off or they were gonna go in and repair the ruptured artery, as well as fix the nerve damage as best they could. The scar itself, Gia, is a huge scar. Every day I see it, it reminds me that of my near-death experience. So when she indicated that to me, I was very angry with her because I hate the scar. Because it was so much damage to my leg itself, I had to have two surgeries. The first surgery itself was to repair the damage itself. So they went inside and when they went inside, they left two sides of my leg open. It's called a fasciotomy wound. And what happens is, is that your muscles now are expanding and it could potentially cut off all um, blood flow to the leg itself. So they opened the left side of my calf and also the right side of my shin in order to allow the swelling to go down. Because of that injury itself, I had a drop foot. The drop foot, they put me in a shin splint for it because my foot would drag on the floor as I walked with crutches. Anytime I walked, my toes would pedal on the ground in a dragging position. So for months after, I should say the third surgery, which was the repairing of all of the putting in the sutures and everything else, putting the skin graft onto my leg. I had this drop foot and I would have a shin splint on. I had to do rehabilitation. For months after I had, to, I had done rehabilitation. So in doing the rehabilitation, during that time, it should also be known that my mind was rehabilitating. My thought process was rehabilitating. My thinking patterns were rehabilitating. And what it was doing to me was saying, Andre, the street is no longer for you. You have to leave this or you're gonna die. This is your only choice. And I started college. This is how my college you know, career started. When I, after I got shot in 1998. So coming into the trauma of that, it put me into a new course of life onto a new career path because I wanted to become a businessman. Because of all of the damage in my leg, I wasn't able to run. So with Andre being incapable of chasing the victims down the street, how could it be that Stephanie identified him as the assailant? And why did his lawyer neglect to bring up this very obvious fact along with medical records in court. 
Andre was certain that this mix-up would all be straightened out during the course of the trial, knowing that it was impossible for him to have committed this crime. He thought it would be obvious to everyone. But unfortunately, that was not the case. Then, the issues started to pile on. During the trial, Stephanie was brought in to testify in court, but then ended up not testifying. She testified a little bit, and then she claimed that there were bullets found on, 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 her, on, her, on her windshield, and so she didn't, she didn't finish testifying at the trial. And instead, her grand jury testimony was admitted, which meant that it was heard by the jury without benefit of cross-examination. Stephanie's grand jury testimony being allowed into Andre's trial was very unusual and very unfair, as Andre's attorney did not have the opportunity to cross-examine Stephanie or ask her any questions, allowing her testimony to stand alone as fact in front of the jury. At the grand jury, there is only a prosecutor present, there is no defense attorney, and no questioning from the other side. We talked to one of Andre's attorneys, Jeffrey Deskovic, about how unusual this was. So the testimony that they that they heard, I mean, didn't have the benefit of anybody from Andre's side asking any questions. So it was never the jury never knew, for example, that the street that she claimed the crime happened on is not the where people ran ran by ran by her where one of the victims was shot. That that was not the correct uh, street. She they never learned that she claimed that she was at a red light, except that there was no red light on that street. It is simply a uh, a stop sign. So they didn't hear any of that. And the point that, you know, it was just a very, very brief, uh, fleeting moment that never, uh, you know, that never, uh, that never came out either. Uh, the, the, the issue of, you know, her hearing rumors in the street, you know, did she hear rumors that was going around that was Andre that did the shooting? You know, is that what motivated her to come forward? She heard the rumor and then, then that she thought it was him. You know, that, that, that's possibly a factor. As, and that's important, especially considering that, you know, Andre and the actual perpetrator, uh, Shonda Tyrell, a.k.a. Bonkers, looked the same, was a spitting image of Andre. So that issue never really fully got explored uh, either. It's extremely, extremely unusual. The general rule is that if a witness is not available, then their prior testimony can be admitted. But that's normally subject to a rule that that somebody standing in the same position, you know, similarly motivated uh, as as the as the defendant would be, would have a chance to have cross-examined her, uh, you know, and tested her credibility. And and here in the grand jury, that 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 didn't happen. So that's extremely unusual. There was no opportunity to question the accuracy of what she testified to or poke holes in her story which we now know would have been the case considering that Stephanie had so many facts and details wrong. So the question remains, why did Stephanie identify Andre? The actual perpetrator, his name was Shonda Tyrell. Shonda and I had very similar features, distinct actually, he's a light-skinned male he, he, had, he wore an Afro-styled haircut at the time, like myself. Um, he was from the neighborhood. He was also a hustler, but 
he sold weed and I sold crack cocaine at the time. So in that aspect, we did two different, we had two different trades, but we looked almost as if we could be brothers or some type of relatives. So this is how the variation of the distinction came about where I walked into the precinct knowing I had nothing to do with this, but he walked scot-free the streets in understanding that I took the rap for his crime. Andre and Shonda looked so similar that even today, when I first met Andre and he shared his story with me, it was unbelievable. I asked him if he thought that Shonda actually looked like him, and his response shocked me. His exact words were, yes, he's almost a spitting image of me. Meditation has truly helped me in so many aspects of my life, from reducing anxiety, to clearing my mind, managing my never-ending to-do list, to helping me sleep. No matter what you're feeling, tap into the Women's Meditation Network and access quick, effective, guided meditations for whatever you need in the moment. If you're anything like me and deal with imposter syndrome, or just need a little confidence boost to start your day, I highly recommend their morning meditations for women. I ended and started my day with a quick 10-minute meditation titled An Invitation to Envision Confidence Morning Meditation. It reminds me to tackle my day with confidence and not allow imposter syndrome to seep in at the most inopportune times, as it always seems to do. The Women's Meditation Network includes 11 different podcasts of their guided meditations and music tracks. So go follow Morning Meditation for Women now wherever you listen to podcasts and start listening for free today. Just search Morning Meditation for Women on your favorite podcast app and follow. Or you can visit www.womensmeditationnetwork.com. More calm, better sleep, and less anxiety are all at your fingertips for free. Due to a mistaken identity and poor police investigation, Andre's life was derailed. Then came the verdict, something Andre never could have fathomed. I was charged with two attempt murders, the attempt murders of O'Neill Virgo and the attempt murder of Sean Nicholson. And I was sentenced to a 40-year maximum sentence. When I was sentenced, I should say, first of all, during the course of trial, and it should be understood that I really had a crooked attorney. My attorney was with the mob. Thomas Lee was a mob affiliate for the Banano crime family. And he represented them throughout the tenure of his entire career, from the inception straight out of college. And through a thorough investigation, we were able to get his records, his transcripts, when he became a federal informant. I never received a fair trial with Thomas Lee. And that's where the ball started rolling down the hill and became an avalanche. Before Thomas Lee, I had a very good attorney named Ira Brown. And Ira Brown 
he had made a defense because I told Ira, I said, listen, Ira, there's no way possible I could have committed this crime. And he asked me, Andre, why? I said, Ira, look at my leg. I could never have ran to engage in a foot chase. It's impossible. To this day, I'm still recovering. He utilized what I said and made that our defense. Because Ira Brown was so engaged in murder trials, my family thought that it would not be plausible to keep him because he, would, he kept on adjourning the case itself. We hired Thomas Lee through a friend who said, Thomas Lee, we should go with him. We were originally trying to get Murray Richmond, but we ended up with Thomas Lee through the referral of Murray Richmond because he was going on, you know, a family friend, I should say, and Murray Richmond because Murray was going on vacation and he couldn't um, take the case. Attorneys have hundreds of cases that they deal with. When you're paid, uh, you're a paid attorney, you're taking on client after client after client. And what happens is sometimes one of your cases may cross another. And now well, the case that's not as active you know, during the course of hearings or moving forward to trial, you adjourn it, you push it off a little bit. And this is what happened because I was in my preliminary stages with Ira Brown. He kept pushing off the case itself and saying to my family, listen, I adjourned it a month. I adjourned it another month. And my family saying, listen, Andre's trying to get back in school. I'm telling them I'm trying to get back to school and make the fall semester. I can't be in here. And we decided to change him. And this is when we got Thomas Lee. And there's a very good possibility that things could have turned out very differently if Andre hadn't switched attorneys. But this decision set off a sequence of unfortunate events that led to Andre's family hiring a mob lawyer unbeknownst to them. Fast forward to the verdict as you asked the question, I was in total shock. First of all, during the course of trial, as understanding everything that I was hearing from the witnesses to their criminal histories to their fabrications, I said, I'm going home. I just knew that the jury was going to see right through these lies or the judge him herself would say, you know what? I've heard enough. Andre's going home. That never happened. A verdict came back through a 12-man jury pool, and I was found guilty. When I was found guilty and I sat there awaiting sentence, I still had great thoughts in my mind. I said, the judge is going to read these transcripts because we had almost a two-month hiatus. I said, the judge is going to read these transcripts. And after she reads what has been said here, I'm going home. That never occurred. On the day of sentencing, they had an impact statement. And that impact statement came through one of the complainant witnesses' mother. Sean Nicholson's mother came and said to Judge Bamberger why she believed I should spend the rest of my life in prison. And she indicated to Judge Bamberger that her son now was an invalid as being a paraplegic because Sean Nicholson was paralyzed from the waist down. In being paralyzed from the waist down, she indicated to Judge Bamberger that Andre Brown should spend the rest of his life in prison without a prayer or a hope of release because she would, for the rest of her life, 
be taking care of her son who was now like a newborn baby who had to depend on his mother for everything to be fed to be changed because he had one of the uh, I'm not sure if it's called a colostomy bag and these are the things that she was outraged about she was so enraged that she told the judge that I should spend the rest of my life without the possibility of parole inside of prison because that sentence is impossible for the judge to hand out the judge made it almost similar so the max i could have received would have been 25 years for each individual the judge said um and she thought it as being nice to me she said i'm going to give you 20 years for O'Neal Virgo and 20 years for Sean Nicholson and both of them will be ran consecutively. And what consecutive sentence means is that you would finish one sentence and then you would start another sentence. So, I was released by the grace of God and exonerated after 23 years my sentence was vacated. I had just started my new sentence. I was 3 years into my next 20 year bid. and in answering your question i was dismayed i was in disbelief i was in shock when the judge rolled her tongue to say andre you would be in prison for the next 40 years I can remember every minute and second and hour of every lasting moment in that place because it was pure hell. Are we talking about coming through central booking, you know, because there's stages and everyone needs to understand the concept of prison and these stages. There's the stages of central booking when you're initially arrested. where you go through a 3-day process, no showers, no phones, um minimal food, a cup of water, and you're sleeping inside of a pulpen, hundreds of individuals stacked upon waiting to see a judge for arraignment. That's one stage. Then you have another stage where now you've been arraigned, um you're indicted for the crime. and now you're housed either in Bronx detention center or on Rikers Island. So I went to both. So I started out on Bronx detention center. I spent about 45 days there. It's beds side by side almost like a homeless shelter. And then from that point on you go to Rikers Island. Both places are traumatically impactful. and I thank God that I came out unscathed. You have to make your way. If you're not tough, you're going to be a victim. And it starts from the minute you walk in to Bronx Detention Center. I should say it starts from the minute you walk into the central booking because if you're not tough enough, you're going to be sitting on the dirty floor with the crackheads and the the homeless individuals because they have benches and 
is limited to about 10 people. Everybody else out of these 80 people in this one bullpen sit on the floor. It's the same thing ushering through Bronx Detention Center. If you're not strong, you won't survive. Your milks will be taken, your commissary will be taken, your manhood would be taken if you're not strong enough to survive. But Rikers Island is a different animal. It's totally different from Central Booking. It's totally different from um, Bronx Detention Center. It's its own animal. This is where you understand you have the potential to die. Men are carrying big weapons that they're making out of anything. Steel, we're not talking about plastic. They're making sharp objects, um, ice picks. They're making sharp objects out of pieces of metal anywhere they can find it in the jail. Let alone, because some of them are gang members, they're hooking up with the correctional staff and paying the correctional staff if those individuals themselves, the correctional staff, are not gang members, because many of them were when I was coming in. And they had these connections with the inmate population, as well as with the outside world, where they would actually be bringing in blunt objects and sharpened objects and drugs and all types of paraphernalia. And it was at all times, you had to fear for your life. You were in a maddening situation. You couldn't sleep at nights. You couldn't use the phone to call your family. I survived it only because I made allies. And in making allies, what I meant by allies, I was always a street guy. So in being a street guy, I started to use my street smarts. I knew that college wouldn't cut it in here. You know, what I learned in college wouldn't cut it on Rikers Island. So I started to use my street smarts. And those street smarts allowed some of the tougher individuals to respect me, you know? I was able to use the phone when I needed to use the phone. I was also able to engage with individuals on not a friendship, but a respect level. They respected me and I respected them. Whether they was extorting people, I minded my business. Whether they were raping people, I minded my business. Whether they were stabbing people and taking their commissary, I minded my business. Because that's what you do in prison. You mind your business. In order to survive, you stay quiet and mind your business. How were you able to just look the other way while seeing such horrific things happening around you? It's almost as if you have a dual personality. And you have to. You put on a mask. And that's what I called it. I would put a mask on when I was going with my family, the real me, the Andre Brown that they knew. When I came back to the cell blocks, I would put another mask on. This mask would entail, I'm not a rat, I mind my business, I'm a stand-up guy, and I'm a man of respect and integrity. I show character, and if you respect me, I'll respect you. And I'm also in my lane, because in prison, there's lanes. If you cross into somebody's lane, it's danger. And that was the beginning. As I said, there are stages into coming into prison that you should know about. And then there was the big stage, which was going up north. This is where everything changed. Because if Rikers Island was bad, now you was about to die. The officers were totally corrupt. And on top of them being corrupt, they weren't of the same culture that you were. On Rikers Island, you had more city officers. 
because they're from the neighborhoods. Um, like I indicated before, some of them may have been gang members, but when you go up north now, you have these individuals who don't understand your culture. The only thing they understand is that you're a criminal and criminals get what criminals deserve, hardship. At every given moment, you get a fist, iron fist, you know, from the counseling units, to the correctional staff, to the superintendent, you are a criminal and know your place. Down North um, indicates certain facilities because correctional facilities go by hubs. So Down North would be considered Sing Sing Correctional Facility, Shawangunk Correctional Facility, Downstate Correctional Facility, Eastern Correctional Facility, Ulster Correctional Facility, and so forth and so on. Green Haven, and you have a few others. Katsaki and Comstock. I could remember it like it was yesterday, all of these different prisons. And then up north now is where the transition comes, where you have Wendy Correctional Facility, Elmira Correctional Facility, Clinton, Attica, um, Auburn, these big no-name prisons where now things happen. Individuals who are mass murderers are housed in these prisons. Individuals who are mass rapists are housed in these prisons. Nothing is uncommon. Everyone is housed together. If you have the time, you could be put with um, the son of Sam. I visited various prisons. There was never a home for me ever because my home is with my family. So I went wherever the state sent me to. I've been to the majority of maximum security prisons throughout the state. It's very cold like a morgue. When you walk into the facility, um, in the front of the facility is a warmer environment. And it's a facade actually. And the facade goes on for the masses because there are times when the politicians come to visit. And when they come, everybody's on high alert. So they must allow the prison to look like as if it's being ran in accordance with policy and procedure. But as I knew it, anything goes. If you did something out of turn or you took a couple extra slices of bread or six extra sugars because you wanted to make something sweet, um, maybe um, make some sugar water because you didn't have commissary, you were heavily reprimanded. And these reprimands can go from anything to a simple slap across the face, a choke um, to your neck, um, stomping on your back, or even sending you to solitary confinement. One day, while Andre was going about his normal routine in prison, an older man approached him. This interaction would start a chain of events that would eventually turn things around. Next week, 
You will hear Andre talk about who this man was, what he showed Andre, and how that was the beginning of his fight for freedom. If you're interested in the story and you want to know more about the case, you can check out our social media pages. We will be sharing photos and more information from the case. We are at Speaking of Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and at Crime Speaking on Twitter. <laughs>